you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Numbers. The Old Testament towards the beginning, Numbers, chapter 13 and chapter 14. And we are on the threshold of a new year. And I like the image of a threshold because it's the idea of a new beginning or a new start. When you think about a threshold, there are some images that come to mind. One is the image of a couple that has gotten married. And as the couple gets married, in tradition, the husband is to carry the wife across the threshold, symbolizing a new beginning of a life together as they are going into the house, into the home, and that they are going for the first time as a couple I think about sometimes on the threshold of a new business, there's the ribbon-cutting ceremony, and it's held right there at the very doors where people will walk through the business, and it's an idea of a new beginning or a new start. And quite literally, you and I stand on this side of a threshold of a new year. Tomorrow night is New Year's Eve, and so at midnight, when it turns to Tuesday... We will be in 2008. Now, just for a quick survey this morning, let's see how many of you here plan to stay up until midnight Monday night. All right? Let me ask this. How many of you plan to stay up but will probably fall asleep on the couch while planning to stay up? There you go. How many of you just don't care you're going to bed? Good. Isn't it interesting how we celebrate New Year's? Some people see it as an opportunity to welcome in this new year, and they'll stay up later than they stay up any other time, and so they start off the new year tired. Some people see it as something just another day, no big deal. We're going to step forward into that. We're going to go to bed our normal time, and we wake up in the morning, and everything will be all right. Around Tennessee, there's some people that celebrate New Year's every year with a special dinner, right? Got to have some black-eyed peas. Right? We had black eyed peas yesterday. Does that do me all right until the new year? Have I got to have it on Christmas? I don't guess this is the time to get into the superstitious nature of that and how unbiblical that might be, but we'll... that's the way we've always done it, right? So New Year's is for some people a big deal, for others not. But here's the reality. One of the things I love about New Year's is it gives us a chance to start again. And one of the things that is true about the Christian faith is that God seems to give us chance after chance to begin again. In Lamentations, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture is uh, when, when Jeremiah is looking over that city that has been destroyed and he's lamenting literally what has happened there and he's talking about it. He says in that, in a passage of Scripture there when he's talking about all the destruction that has come, he says, but your mercies are new every morning, every day. And the idea really is for Christians that if we claim it, every morning can be a New Year's Day. But in our country, we set aside January 1st. One of the things that's always kind of intrigued me is that it comes exactly one week after Christmas. When I was in college, we used to go to a conference, or we went to a conference a couple of times, an important conference in my life that God used. But we would go, and it would start on January 1st. And I remember being in uh, Austin, Texas, one January 1st, actually December 31st. We got there early that day, and uh, we decided to go out on 
you know, and see what was happening in, in Austin, Texas on December 31st. And we walked to 6th Street downtown, and it was um, some friends of ours, Susan was in that, some people from Union, and we walked downtown, and it was amazing what all was going on. I would describe it to you, but it, it's not appropriate for church. And this was the thought that went through my head. How different a week ago must have been. Because exactly a week earlier was Christmas Eve, and I imagine there may have been some of that, but most of that wasn't going on in Austin, Texas. And I thought about how our priorities change in such a quick week. And as I think about that, I think about how many people will inaugurate 2008. And my goal and my desire is that for you and for me, 2008 starts better than 2007 ended. And that we really begin to launch towards what God intends. Now, nobody really knows exactly what's coming in 2008. I mean, there are some events that we look forward to. I know for a year and a half you've been hearing about the Iowa caucuses, and the good thing is they're done on January 3rd. February 3rd is an important day, not just because it's my birthday, but but they decided to celebrate my birthday with the Super Bowl. They do that every now and then. And it's going to be an exciting day for our church because on February 3rd, on Super Bowl night, we're going to have in-home Sunday school class fellowships. And so we're going to celebrate together as Sunday school classes. Some of you may choose to watch the game. Some of you may not, but we're going to celebrate together, and so that will be a big deal. February 5th, just a couple of days later, is Super Tuesday, and that's some election things happening there. And by that time, hopefully we'll have a good idea of who's going to be running so we can listen to them talk for nine months. March, you got elections in Russia and Spain. And WrestleMania 24, just in case you wanted to know. Easter happens in March this year in May. Two big movies come out. Prince Caspian, The Chronicles of Narnia, second one. And Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, where Harrison Ford, who is now 70-something, will play a 40-something. In July, after three decades, Bill Gates will step down as Microsoft with only about $45 billion to his name. August 8th starts the Summer Olympics. In September, the Yankees and the Mets will play their last regular season games in their current stadiums. And in November, there's this little thing called the presidential election. Happens the first week of November, and the second week of November, we'll begin to talk about 2012. Now, the truth is, those are all... That would be funny if it weren't true, right? The thing is, those are all plans, and we really don't know if any of them are going to happen. I mean, the truth is, we've got something exciting planned next Sunday night. Next Sunday night, some of you may not be aware of this, we're going to have a Southern Gospel group here. They're going to do a concert. It's a group that has actually been on tour a couple of times with the Gaithers. They're a young and upcoming group. They're great, and I'm excited about them being here. They'll be here next Sunday night, and we've got plans as a church. We met as a staff about a month ago, and we planned out next year. We put plans down, and we got, not that they're not going to change, but we've got plans and things that we want to see happen and things that we want to do. But the truth is nobody really knows what's going to happen in 2008, right? Well, God knows, but none of us know. And there are a lot of people over the next few days that will make a lot of money or try to predicting what's going to happen. But the truth is nobody knows. 2008 is a complete unknown. When I think about our 2007, and you can think about yours, if you would have told me January 2007, everything that would happen last year, I don't know that I would have believed you. 
Now, there were some things we expected to happen that happened. Luke went from not being mobile to crawling to walking to running in a year. We kind of expected that. To be honest with you, I'd never be expected to be standing here on this day preaching to you. But God changed those plans in the middle of the year. And the truth is, God has amazing plans out there for you, and the enemy has equally disheartening plans for you, and somewhere in between is where your life will settle down, and you don't know have a clue what's going to come up. Some of you will face tragic news in the coming year. Some of you sitting here right now will develop an illness that you don't know a thing about right now, but that will be very difficult on you. Some of you will have loved ones that will pass away that you never expect at this moment to see that happen. Some of you will have a financial uh, problem in your house or in your business and things won't turn out like you think. Some of you will have a crisis at your job. Some of you have a crisis in relationships. There are some difficult days ahead. Now at the same time, some of you are going to have some excitements that you haven't experienced before. Some of you may have a wedding planned in the next year or may have a child that you've long waited for or grandchild that you've long waited for or great-grandchild. Some of you in this room will have people recover from illnesses that right now you don't see any way they can get out of it. Some of you will have your life transformed financially and you don't have a clue how that's going to happen now, but it will and God will do something amazing. Some of your jobs will improve. God will move some of you into new areas or new ministry responsibilities. Some of you are going to see God do some things in your life in a ministry capacity that you can't imagine right now. But the truth is what makes it so difficult is that none of us have a clue what's to come. And this morning we're going to look in the book of Numbers at a time in the life of Israel that was very pivotal. Very pivotal in the life of who they were as a nation and what they would do. It was a moment of decision when they stood on the threshold of some exciting things and they had to make a decision about how they were going to face it. And as we look at that this morning, the question I want to ask is how can we face the future that is to come? How can we as First Baptist Church, Goodlettsville. How can you, as an individual follower of Christ, how can you, someone that may not be a follower of Christ yet, how can you face this future that is coming? Look with me, if you will, on your handout. If you don't, you can follow in your copy of God's Word. But I like the way the message paraphrases this, and it's on the handout you have. Numbers 14, 1 through 9. I'll give you a little background. In Numbers 13 and 14, you have this little thing where the Israelites are getting to the point where they're ready to enter into the promised land. Now, you'll remember that the promised land was something they had been looking forward to, had been excited about. When they left Egypt, they were going to the promised land. Moses was leading them, and they had opportunity after opportunity to be faithful to God along the way. And God had delivered them time after time after time. And they come to the part where they get where they can send out some spies to see what the land is like. And so they get these 12 together, and they send them out, and they're waiting for their report to come back. When the report comes back in chapter 13, which we're not going to read, they come back and two people say, we can go take it. This is what God has delivered us. We've got to go do that. 
But the other ten come back and say, you wouldn't believe what we saw. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. There is all kinds of good stuff there. But when we got there, the people are huge. They've got big-time cities. They're fortified. There is no way we can take the cities. And so we decide that we don't want to go over there. And so you have the ten that say we don't go. You have the two that say God's told us that it's our land. Let's go. And in their reports and in their responses, we're going to see two ways we can face the new year. Numbers chapter 14, 1 through 9, says this. The whole community was in an uproar, wailing all night long. All the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The entire community was in on it. Why didn't we die in Egypt or in this wilderness? Why has God brought us to the country to kill us? Our wives and our children are about to become plunder. Why don't we just head back to Egypt and right now? Soon they were all saying to one another, let's pick a new leader. Let's head back to Egypt. Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in front of the entire community, gathered in an emergency session. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephthah, members of the scouting party, ripped their clothes and addressed the assembled people of Israel. The land we walked through and scouted out is a very good land, very good indeed. If God is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land that flows, as they say, with milk and honey, and he'll give it to us. Just don't rebel against God, and don't be afraid of those people. Well, we'll have them for lunch. They have no protection, and God is on our side. Don't be afraid of them. Two ways that we can enter into 2008 or symbolize in these two ways that people watched as they talked about the coming of going into the promised land. And the first thing is we can be frightened by our future. As we look at 2008, we can stand on this side of it, not knowing what is ahead, not knowing what is to come, and we could be scared to death. Ten of the twelve spies come back and they give this, this report. They give these, these, these reports. It says in verse 32 of chapter 13, if you've got your Bibles open, they spread among the Israels a bad report about the land they explored. And so they come back and they say, listen, it is a great land. It's unbelievable, but there is no way we can take it. And here's what's interesting is that suddenly as they spread this report, more and more and more people begin to believe the bad news. Have you ever noticed how easily bad news and gloom spreads? This means yes, this means no. Have you ever seen it? I've been around people that just... just, uh, just all, all they like to do, it seems, is to give you the bad news. Now, I'm a guy that understands the realities of life and that there are some times when there is news that is not good. But in general, I like to be optimistic about what God is doing and what's happening. But there are just people that it doesn't matter what's going on. They can always find the cloud in the silver lining. Right? And what happens here is these reports come back and they say, it is terrible, it is unbelievable. You're not going to believe how big those people are. And suddenly the gloom and doom spreads. Look what they say. Why didn't we just die back there? Now, I'll tell you, that's when it gets sad. It's when you wished you would have died earlier. And as little by little they begin to give this report, not only do they get upset and they get sad, they suddenly, suddenly become frightened about what God might do to them or these people might do. One author has said about the Christian life and about churches in general that oftentimes churches, they have pessimism is more harm to them 
than atheism. I think I've mentioned before that most churches, and I haven't discovered you yet here, most churches have a cold water committee. It's an unofficial title, but the people are proud members of it, and their general job is whenever anything exciting has happened, they have to come along and pour cold water on it. You seen that before? Things start to happen, things start to get exciting, and somebody says, yeah, but... Did you see what happened the other day? Or I wonder how long will that will last. Give him six months. When I had been in the ministry about a year, some of my friends called me up and they asked me, so, and they said it with kind of a tone in their voice, how do you like being in ministry? And the idea was you've been in it long enough, buddy boy, to get to the point where you realize it's not so good. The truth is, God is a God of optimism. God is a God that wants to give us a plan that is greater than we can imagine. And when we begin to give in, not only do we, do we miss out on what God has for us, but in reality, we are rebelling against Him. Now, if this were the only time the Israelites did this, it would be maybe understandable. It's a big people. we got problems. But if you look on the history from the time they left Egypt, God performs miracle after miracle after miracle. And every step along the way of the miracles, they get upset when difficulty comes and they want to go back. They escape. God brings them out. Passover has just happened. They hear the wailing of the streets as they leave. And they get to the Red Sea. And Pharaoh's army's coming down. And they all yell, Moses, why did you bring us out here to die? Let's go back. And so God parts the Red Sea. Well, God parts the Red Sea. They get on the other side. Moses goes up on the mountain. Moses is up on the mountain. A little too long for the Israelites. So they say to, to his uh brother let's get some gold let's make a calf and so they make a golden calf and they start to complain that it's not as good as they had it back in egypt when they were slaves you can pay nothing doing hard labor all the time and moses come down from the mountain he sits there and he looks and aaron's there and they say what happened and he said all this gold jumped in the fire and out jumped a cow we wanted to go back and so God delivers them from that. He brings them back to their message. He, Moses gets, you know, talks to God. God relents in his anger. They get out in the desert. They don't have enough food. So God sends manna. Every day they wake up and their food is out there. They don't go to the grocery. They don't have to go hunt and kill. Every day they get up and they walk outside. And outside their tents is any food they want to eat for that day. And on Saturday, or I mean Friday, excuse me, the day before the Sabbath, they get two portions so they can have some the next day. And after a while, while that is an amazing miracle, they get upset. Because they don't have any meat to eat. God, we appreciate you providing this meal at no cost every day, but we really would like some meat. And so God says, I'm going to give them meat, and I'm going to give them quail, and I'm going to give it till it's running out their noses. And he does. Every step along the way, God delivers, and it just seems that they forget all the time. To the point where they get here and they're ready on the verge of going into the promised land. And as they get ready to go into the promised land, as God has promised to deliver them, they get there and all of a sudden these spies come back with what the scripture literally says. If you look at the original Hebrew, is an evil report. And it's evil because it's against God's wishes. I want you to see in this passage there are two things that are being rebelled against here, that they are literally rebelling in this report. And the first is, in their frightened state, in their fear, they are rebelling against their own leaders. I mean, look what happens in chapter 14 back in the NIV. 
It says that the report comes. It begins to spread. And that night, all the people of community raised their voices and wept aloud. Now listen to what they weep against, what they cry against. Verse 2, all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And they said to the whole assembly, if only we died in Egypt or in the desert, why are they letting us go this far? Look at verse 4. And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back. Now think about this. Moses comes out of exile, performs the wonders of God. God confirms him as the leader of these people. And when the ten spies come back, they say it's a big time land with big people. They all grumble against Moses and say, we want somebody else. This is just a little bit of a side note, but just to let you know. Whenever the enemy really wants to shake up a church... Whenever he really wants to divide and conquer, what he will do is he will take some people in the midst of a congregation and make them rise up against the leadership. What happens here is he gets the people to start talking, and before long, everybody's against the leader. And they think to themselves, if we just get rid of Moses, everything will be all right. Now I want you to think, you know the story. Where was the problem? Was it with Moses or was it with the people? That's not one of those rhetorical questions. Was it with Moses or with the people? The people. But they think if they just get rid of Moses, everything will be all right. The truth is, the people needed to come and make themselves right with God. Look what it says. It says they were united in their opposition. They were distraught. They were weeping. And they were defiant to the point where they say, let's just go back to slavery and undo everything God has done for us miraculously over the last little bit. Now I want you to see not only were they rebelling against the leaders, but the important thing to see here is that it's called an evil report because they were rebelling against their Lord. What it basically says in this passage of Scripture, what we understand from chapter 13 and 14, is when the report comes back and they're frightened about their future, that they are despising the provision of God. They're questioning the protection of the Lord. They're doubting the love of the one who had delivered them. They are disowning the redemption that had been given to them. And they're spurning the very leader that God put in place. And when you despise his provision, when you question his protection, when you doubt his love, when you disown his redemption, and when you spurn his leader, you are rebelling against God Almighty himself and the truth is if you enter 2008 scared to death to the point of inaction in what God calls you to do then you are rebelling against God you see oftentimes in Baptist churches we are real good about telling people what they ought not to do I mean we got a list somewhere I don't know where it is but we developed a list at some time in our history of all the things you can't do and as new movies and new ideas and new cultural things come out, we add to that list on a constant basis. But here's the real problem in the lives of Christians and the reasons that we don't see God move like we ought to see Him is not what we don't do or, what, or that we're doing what we ought not to do. It's that we're not doing what He calls us to do. You see, what happened with the Israelites wasn't that they were doing a bunch of bad stuff here. They were just rejecting God's plan. 
And I would dare say that there are some of you in this room that if you don't begin 2008 completely passionately devoted to Him, you are going to reject God's plan for your life the next year because of fear, because of problems, because of insecurity, because of circumstances. And as a result, you will be rebelling against God Almighty Himself. If you just think about it, these people were asking to go back to a life without freedom, without guidance, without security, without provision, protection, forgiveness, worship, or hope. All because they were scared of what lay ahead. Most of you know the story, and the truth is that their rebellion would cost all of them. That only Joshua and Caleb would be privileged enough out of this generation to see the promised land. One way we could face 2008 is we think about all that's coming ahead is that we could face it and be frightened by the future. We could look inside and say, well, I just don't know what's going to happen and I'm scared and so I'm, I'm not going to step out in faith. I'm not going to do what God calls me to do. I'm not going to take these steps. I'm not going to get on board with what's happening at the church. I'm not going to get on board with what God's doing in my life because I'm just a little bit frightened. The second way we can do it on the threshold of a new year is that we can embrace the future. Joshua and Caleb are two of my heroes in the Old Testament. First sermon series I ever preached as a pastor was at First Baptist Church Ripley, where I came from before here. And the first sermon series I ever preached was on Joshua. Because what's amazing is by the time Moses' life ends and they wander around the wilderness for those 40 years and that generation passes away, when Moses gets ready to retire, when God gets ready to take Moses off the scene and he is about to die, Moses is the most revered leader you can imagine. And into his place steps this young guy. Now, Joshua probably wasn't real young when he stepped into place, but he was a young guy to them. And Joshua takes that mantle of leadership from Moses, and he begins to move forward. Caleb was a guy that even in his old age, it says, was willing to do whatever God asked. And these two guys, when they saw all that was ahead of them, even the big people, even the fortified cities, their position, their understanding is that if God intends for us to take the land, then we will take the land if we are faithful to him and instead of being frightened and scared to death about what God was going to do or what was going to happen in the days ahead these two men rallied around God's promises God's provision God's generosity and moved in a direction of following him in 2008 the question is will you be frightened about what God has or what is lurking down the road, or will you embrace it, ready to move forward? This morning, I want to give you just a few things about ways that you can embrace the future and move forward that these two men and Moses understood as they went ahead. First of all, if you're going to embrace the future, you need to learn that you need to accept God's promises. If you're going to Embrace the future and have a great 2008. You've got to learn to accept God's promises. Now the truth is our lives would be much better if we would just believe and live in the promises of God. William Carey once said that the future is as bright as the promises of God. And when you think about what's happening here, when you think about what's going on, what they're saying and what they're doing in this passage of Scripture is Joshua and Caleb are saying, listen, God has already given us this land. 
It shouldn't even be a discussion because God has given it to us. Look what happens in chapter 13, verse 2. And for these four things, we're going to go back to the book of Numbers, chapter 13, because we're going to see the foundation that was there. And in Numbers 13, 2, Moses says to them, or the Lord says to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, every one a leader among them. Send out for yourself a man, so that you may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You see, what was happening here was God was just fulfilling His promise. He told the Israelites early on that He was going to give them this land. They moved out of Egypt. They were going towards this land. They get to the land, and God says, I'm going to give you the land. If we would claim God's promises in our lives and understand them, then we could move forward. The Israelites, if they would claim God's promises in their life, they would have never had all of the difficulty. Now, if you look back at the Abrahamic promises that God gives to Abraham, you see even there early on, he says to Abraham, I'm going to do two things for you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And I'm going to give you a land that people will be able to dwell on. Now, there are more parts of that promise, but the basics of it is I'm going to make you a great nation and you're going to have a land. And so you put those two together. And what Joshua and Caleb saw, what Moses saw is that God had promised it that ought to be good enough. So what about us? Somebody has done the counting. It wasn't me, and so I trust their counting. But they have counted 1,260 promises in the Bible. Now think about this. There are only 1,189 chapters in the Bible. And so the truth is, if we do the math there, not doing it real fast, but from what I see, that's more than one promise per chapter in the Bible. So what kind of promises are there? As we think about 2008, what kind of promises do we have? If you're a follower of Jesus, this is what you have promised to you. First of all, that you have God's presence. Hebrews 13:5 says, I will never leave thee. When Jesus gets ready to leave the earth, he says, I will no never leave you. I will no never forsake you. That's terrible English. It's great Greek and comforting words of God. We have the promise of God's protection. Genesis 15:1 says, God says, I am your shield. Isaiah 41.10 tells us about God's power and provision. He says, I will strengthen you and I will help you. We have God's leading. John 10.4 says that when he put forth his own sheep, he goes before them. We have the promise of God's purposes. In Jeremiah 20.11, God says, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace, not of evil. We have the promise of God's rest when you need it in 2008. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, God says, Come unto me, all you who are labor and are weary, and I will give you rest. We have the promise of God's forgiveness and cleansing. In 1 John 1, 9, it says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. We have the promise of God's goodness. Psalm eighty four eleven says, No good thing will He withhold from those that walk uprightly. We have the promise of God's faithfulness. 1 Samuel 12:22 says the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. We have the promise of God's wise plan to do good. Romans 8:28 says, for we know that in all things God works together for those who love him and called according to his purpose. If you're going to have a great 2008, it's going to start 
accepting the promises that God has given you. Not only do we need to accept God's promises, the second thing we need to do for a great 2008 is to remember God's faithfulness. Remember God's faithfulness. Now, his faithfulness is rooted in his unchanging nature. He has been faithful in the past will continue to do so in the present. It, you know, I, I said earlier, it amazes me that these people just keep forgetting God's faithfulness. God delivers them, and shortly thereafter, they're crying out for something else to be done. They just forget God's faithfulness. The book of Judges is one of those books that over and over again, they just forget God's faithfulness. And I, I get pretty hard on them sometimes in my thinking. I think, I can't believe they don't remember God's faithfulness. And then suddenly, I think about my own life and how often I forget God's faithfulness. How many times in your own life have you been in a situation where news comes that you didn't expect and your first thought is, how in the world am I going to handle that? Your first thought is not, I am thankful that God is faithful and He will carry me through this. It's, how in the world am I going to get through it? I think about it in my own life when difficult situations come and my first thought is not, oh God, I'm waiting to see how you're going to come forward. God, I'm waiting to see how you're going to bring me through this because you are a faithful God. Look at Numbers 13, 17 through and 22. Moses tells them in Numbers 13 that when they go to scatter out this land, he gives them a very specific route. When Moses sent them to scout the land of Canaan, he told them, Go up this way into the Negev, then up to the hill country. They went up through Negev and came to Hebron. Now, I know that that's not a big deal to us when we think about Hebron, but most people think Hebron was a very, and it is an Old Testament, significant place. It is there that Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Rebekah, and Leah all have roots. And what Moses intended for them to do is as they walked this route, as they went by Hebron, and they saw all the pilgrimage of their ancestors, they would remember the faithfulness of God. It was almost as if Moses was giving them a history lesson in God's faithfulness before they ever got to the land to spot out because he wanted them to realize no matter what you see there, God will be faithful to carry us through. And here's the truth about 2008. Well, I have no idea what God is going to have in store for me in 2008, what the enemy is going to have in store for me in 2008, what life will bring in 2008. Because of 2007 and 2006 all the way to 1976 when I was born, I know that my God is faithful. And whatever comes in 2008 is not enough to make me doubt that. If you're going to have a great 2008, you need to accept God's promises. You need to remember God's faithfulness and two other things quickly. You need to realize God's generosity. Look what it says in Numbers 13:23 in the New Living Translation. When they came to what is now known as the Valley of Eschol, they cut down a cluster of grapes so large that it took two of them to carry it on a pole between them. They also took samples of pomegranates and figs. Now, that's one of those kind of throwaway verses you read. You think that's kind of neat. But here's the problem, or here's what God is intending to show them there. It says they get into the land. It's this land that's been promised to them. They walk in. They get there, and they see these grapes, and they think, man, we've got to take that back to the people. I mean, have you seen the grapes? And they get such a cluster of grapes that they can't carry it on their own. 
Now, I know for us that's not a big deal because most of us find our grapes in a bag in Publix or Kroger or Walmart. Right? If any of you walked out of the Walmart with the, somebody else and you're carrying a grapevine with grapes holding on it, you're going to be a little looked at funny, right? But for them, what it symbolizes is you have to realize there may have been two million people with them. We're not talking about a small little contingency going through. We're not talking about a group of six or seven. We're talking about two million that had to find a place for food. And they come across this grape and they say, we've got to take that back because we've got to show them how God is going to provide. Now, apparently this was before they saw all the things that were going to make them feel like they couldn't take the land. But it was in that moment that they realized that God wanted to give them more than they could imagine. What it was saying is that the faithfulness of God is in the past, but we can depend on it. But the generosity of God is right here in the present. And look what he has provided. Now, I wonder how their attitude would have been different coming back if they would have focused on the generosity of God instead of the size of those in the other land. The truth is, for those of us living in America today, living in the sound of my voice in this room, God has been generous to us. As I sat around at Christmas and I looked at what my boys had gotten, what I had gotten, and what our families had exchanged, I couldn't help but feel a little embarrassed about the generosity of God in my life. As I got home yesterday and I had a Christianity Today sitting on my, uh, sitting in my mailbox and I pulled it out and the cover story is about Christians in Turkey who literally feel like their lives are on the line every time they walk out their door and they talk about their faith. And I think about how bold they are and I sit around in my comfortable apartment and I look at all the stuff that I have and I think about how many times I fail to see the generosity of God. And if you're going to have a great 2008, after you accept God's promise and remember His faithfulness, you've got to understand His generosity and be grateful. Here's the last thing. We must also not only realize God's generosity, but we must receive God's resources. Back in chapter 14, verse 7. After the reports come back and the people rise up and things are going, after the whole assembly is upset with Moses, after the whole assembly is there, they're, they're, they're mad and they want to get a new leader. Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelites. Joshua and Caleb uh, tear their clothes in front of the whole Israelites. And in verse 7 it says, The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. Verse 8. If the Lord has pleased us, he will, not lead, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Do not rebel against the Lord. Do not be afraid of the people, because we will swallow them up. The protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid. Here's the reality. I don't have a clue what you've got ahead of you in 2008, but I can tell you without a doubt that whatever you have to face, God has given or will give you the resources to handle it. I'm a golfer. Not a very good one, and I haven't played a lot lately. It's a little cold outside right now. One of the things that I do as a golfer is I, I read golf magazines. And in golf magazines, they're always telling you about the newest and latest equipment that will make you a better golfer. 
And about two years ago, I got some new golf clubs. And here's the amazing thing. I'm a little bit better golfer. Better equipment, better golfer. Now, I'm not Tiger Woods. I'm not Leroy Woods. I don't know who he is, but I'm not as good as him probably. But I got a little better because the equipment got better. And sometimes I, in my life, think to myself, well, I could do what God would want me to do if he would have just given me this. If I just had better equipment. If I had a different kind of spirit. If I had a different kind of attitude. And I focus on what I don't have. I I look at other Christians. I look at other preachers. I look at other church members. I look at other family members. And I think, man, if I could do that like they do, then I would do it for the glory of God. If I could just speak like they do, if I could just talk like they do, if I could be bold like they do, if I could love like they do, if I serve like they do, I would do it for the glory of God. Here's the reality. God has given you everything you need to accomplish what God intends for you to accomplish. You don't need better equipment. Amen? Now some of you say that and don't believe a word of it. But God has given you everything thing you need. You don't need a better driver or sand wedge or irons. You don't need a better communication skill. You don't need a better disposition. Now here's the reality. God will mold what you have sometimes to make it more useful. So don't get out of the idea that you don't need to do anything to work at it. But the truth is God has gifted you with everything you need. Now the flip side of that is this church has every gift in it or God will provide every gift we need to do what he calls us to do. And so we can't look at other churches and say, boy, if we just had that. We can't look at other ministries and say, if we could just do it like they do. The truth is God's given us everything we need. And in 2008, God is calling you as an individual, God is calling us as a church to do some magnificent, mighty, inspiring, unbelievable things. But we will never do it if we're constantly thinking about what we don't have. We don't need new equipment. We just need to use the one God has given us. Now let me just tell you this in closing about 2008. It's a little warning that comes under that about receiving God's blessings, and that is simply this. Don't make the mistake in this coming year of magnifying the problems and minimizing the resources. When you look at this report of the people, the thing that you see over and over again is they magnify what's in the other land. I'm sure there were some big people there. I'm sure there were some cities that were okay. But the truth is, it is nothing. It was nothing like what they describe. And sometimes whenever we're facing difficulties, we magnify the problems to the point where they're much bigger than we, than, than we see that they really are. And when we magnify the problems, the second thing that we do is that we minimize our resources. I mean, they come back and say, we look like grasshoppers. Now, the truth is, the people were not that big. Have you seen the difference between us and a grasshopper? It's startling, right? The people of the other land were not that much bigger than them. But they're exaggerating. They're minimizing. And the truth is that God sometimes puts us in the midst of very difficult situations just so we'll understand the resources that we have in Him. One guy said that sometimes the most glorious promises of God 
are fulfilled in such a wondrous manner that he steps forth to save us at a time when there is the least appearance he will do so. Let me tell you that I don't know what 2008 has to hold for you, but I can guarantee you this, that when you need God, he will show up and he will be there if you're faithful to him. So what does 2008 look like for you? As you stand on the threshold, as you get ready to go towards 2008, what does it look like? Are you frightened? Are you scared? Are you looking at that and saying, I I don't know what it's like. I'm scared that I'm going to mess up and so I'm not going to act. I'm I'm scared that I'm going to do something I shouldn't so I'm not going to act. Are you looking to 2008 ready to embrace it for all that God is going to do? You're going to accept His promises. You're going to walk out and say, God, I know that you care about me. I know that you want me to do well. I know that you have all these promises for me, and I want to accept your promises. Are you going to remember his faithfulness? Are you going to realize his generosity? Are you going to receive his resources to face whatever comes? This morning, during our time of invitation, I just want to ask you how you're going to face the year ahead. You notice nowhere in the sermon this morning, nowhere in our time together yet, have I mentioned the word resolution. Some of you may already have your list. That's not necessarily a bad thing. I just know when I make resolutions, they get resolved real quickly. Right? This morning, my question is, are you willing to make some commitments? Are you willing to commit to God that whatever 2008 brings, I'm going to accept that you are in the midst of it and that you can take me through it? Are you willing to say, God, no matter what comes ahead in 2008, I want to be faithful to living for you? Are you willing to say, God, no matter if my family gets sick, no matter if I lose someone very close to me, no matter if my job is to walk away, no matter if my money is to be wasted and gone, no matter what happens, God, I will trust you in the middle of it. And I'm excited about what you're going to do. Are you willing to say, God, I don't know what you have in store for this church in the year ahead. And it may be things that I'm not comfortable with, but whatever it is that you have in store, I'm willing to move forward, God. Lord, I don't know what you're going to do, and I don't know what Brother Lyle's going to say, and I don't know how his leadership's going to lead us, but Lord, I promise to you, I commit to you today, that however he leads us under your direction, I'm going to follow Lord, I I don't know how the staff is going to look at the end of this year. I don't know how it's going to be formed. I don't know what what you're going to do in that process. But, Lord, we are trusting that you're bringing the people here that you intend to bring. And, Lord, we are excited about what's going to happen. And, Lord, I want to be on board of whatever it is. Basically, this morning I'm asking, are you going to be a Joshua and a Caleb? Or are you going to be the other ten? You're going to be a Joshua and Caleb that says, God, whatever comes, I'm willing to go, and I want to commit my life, even if it means giving it up, to live passionately devoted to you and your plan. Are you going to be the other ten that say, "Uh, I don't know, let's pull back just a minute. I'm not asking you what your resolutions are this year. I'm asking you what your commitment is. And this morning during our time of invitation, there's going to be a moment if you're not a believer, you've never followed Jesus, you don't really know what that is, there'll be a moment when you can come and take my hand and ask me some questions. I'll be here at the front. I'd love to talk to you about that. 
There'll be a moment where maybe your commitment is, this is where God is planting us as a family. This is where God's planting you as an individual. And this is where God wants you to become part of this church. And your commitment as we stand on the, the, the threshold of 2008 is to commit to this church. And you want to come do that. I'll be here for that this morning. Well, maybe you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus. You're a member of this church. And this morning you just need to make some commitments to the Lord. And you need to come forward to do that. This morning the question is, what are your commitments? What is your 2008 going to look like? Let's bow together for prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for new starts. Lord, we thank you for new days. We thank you for new years. Lord, my prayer is this morning as we've gathered coming out of Christmas and looking forward to 2008 and all that you have in store, Lord, that we would face it with a spirit of excitement as we embrace the future you have for us. And, Lord, that we would commit, that we would do whatever it takes to see your purposes fulfilled, to see your plan enacted. And, Lord, that in this place, Lord, that we would not be the complainers and the grumblers and the other ten, Lord, but that we would be a place full of Joshua and Caleb's, ready to move forward into your future. And Lord, this morning as we sing about taking our life and molding it into what you want it to be, Lord, my prayer is that they wouldn't just be words out of our mouths, Lord, but that they would be the prayers and desires of our hearts. Lord, that you would make our lives useful to you. Lord, that we would surrender to that plan. This morning, Lord, I pray that you would put on the hearts of each person here what they need to do and how they need to follow you. And, Lord, that they would be obedient in that. And, Lord, we'll give you the praise for what you do. Lord, let your will be done in this place just as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name I pray.